Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Coming up this week, Lonesome George, the last tortoise of his kind on Earth. Also, marine conservation, how do we keep fish on the dinner plate and make sure they're of a reasonable size for eating? An invasive species, zebra mussels and killer cane toads in Kakadu. That's in Australia. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this is this week's edition of The Naked Scientist. Here to help me co-present tonight's programme is Helen Scales. Hi, Chris. It's very good to be back on the programme. Thank you very much. We're also going to be hearing about what frogs have got in common with whales and bats. And we're waiting in the studio to hear your questions. So if you've got anything at all you'd like to ask us about science, technology or medicine, then give us a call. The phone number is, as always, 08459 252000 or give us an email at chris at com. We're waiting to hear from you now. And if you're in an experimental mood, Derek is in the kitchen with Professor Herbert Huppert and Henry this evening and they're going to show you how to make your very own tornado in a bottle. You just need a bottle and some water. Stay tuned, that's Kitchen Science coming up very, very shortly here on The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientists.com. It is, of course, Cambridge Science Festival this week, which is big news for Cambridge, and we'll be catching up with what happened at the launch day, Science on Saturday, very, very soon on the programme. But before then, frogs are croaking an ultrasound, it seems, because Albert Feng, who's a researcher from the University of Illinois in the US, has been out to China, to the Huashan region, region, which is a mountainous area of China, which has a number of springs. And there's a particular kind of frog who live there called the, the concave-eared torrent frog. And because they live in such a noisy environment, there's very great risk of their croaks being drowned out by the sounds of running water. So they've evolved this incredible strategy to get round it. They've evolved to use ultrasound. And what the researchers did was to record a number of these frogs with very sensitive equipment, and they noticed that not only were they croaking the conventional way, but they were also making these additional high-pitched croaking noises. And when they recorded those noises and then played them back to a second group of male uh, concave-eared torrent frogs, they found that those frogs mimicked those croaking noises. So it showed that the frogs were responding. To find out how they were responding and if they were using their ears to do so, the researchers then blocked up the frogs' ears and the croaking went away. So what they're really eager to find out now is whether the females respond in the same way and indeed what effect this ultrasonic croak has on those females. An intriguing story. Now, I mentioned earlier we're going to tell you how to make your very own tornado in your kitchen and what you'll need is a bottle to do this. Derek is with Henry and Herbert Huppert and uh, they're in the Naked Scientist Laboratory. We want you to experiment alongside the programme because if you are the first through with an explanation and the correct observation with this, then you could win yourself a prize. Uh, the phone number to call, if you'd like to take part, note this down, we'll be giving it during the programme anyway, is 08459 25,000. You can also email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Derek, what have you got for us? Hello, and welcome once again to the Naked Scientist Laboratory. And today we have an unbelievably easy and very cool experiment which you can do at home. So just please listen up to find out what that will be. And with me to describe exactly what we will be doing is Professor Herbert Huppert of Cambridge University. Hello there, how are you doing? How are you, uh, Derek? I am very well, thank you, and very much looking forward to what we've got set up. So what is it that we're going to be doing today? We're going to do a simple experiment, but that is going to have quite uh, surprising results, we're going to make a tornado in the kitchen, in a simple lemonade bottle. And we'll be hearing exactly how to do that in a moment. Uh, with us as well is a helper. Uh, could you tell us your name and age, please? Um, hello, I'm Henry and I'm 12. Excellent. Thanks very much for coming in and helping us do this experiment. You'll be the one doing it, of course. Anyway, um, we're here to do some fantastic science, but what is it you like about science? Um, I like science because it's related to everything, and the things we do know are magnificent, but the things we don't know are absolutely fascinating. 
Well, fantastic answer. And, of course, we will be relating this experiment to some very, very real things as well later on. So, everyone, keep listening to the later part of the show uh, when you can hear all about that. So then, you at home, you can do this too. It's very, very easy. What you need is um, a lemonade bottle or just any kind of fizzy drinks bottle, preferably a nice big round one, two litres is good. And uh, really, that is it. You need to do this in your kitchen. You need to fill that bottle up with water. And otherwise, you need to do some things to it, which Herbert will now describe. So what do people have to do, Herbert? Well, there are really two parts to this uh, experiment, and we're going to compare the results. The first part consists of filling up the uh, bottle with water right to the top and then just turning it upside down and watching how the water escapes, how quickly that happens and what limits the escape of the water. And I'm sure people can probably expect what's going to happen there, but then we're going to ask them to do something else. So what's that? What we're going to do in the second experiment is rather than just letting the water pour out of the bottle, we're going to give the water and the bottle some swirl to start with. We're going to turn it around rapidly in a rotatory motion so that as well as the water pouring out of uh, the bottle, it's also going round, and that'll make a difference. OK, so just to reiterate that, you've got to get that bottle full of water, and then as soon as you turn it upside down to pour the water out, you've got to move it round in big swift circles. And we don't mean just twisting the bottle. We actually mean moving the whole bottle round in big continuous circles, very, very swiftly. And it's important to actually swirl it for a few rotations, get it going round really nicely and see if you can get that whirlpool effect, and then stop swirling it and just hold it just as you did when you held the bottle in the first condition and see what happens. And that is all there is to the experiment. So, Henry, then, we're going to be asking you to do this later on in the show, but what do you think is going to happen? It'll create a whirlpool. And what we want to know really is what's going to happen to the water pouring out. You know, how is it going to be different when the water pours out? So what do you think what might be different about the two methods? I don't know. OK, well, we will be finding out. So you at home, perhaps you don't know what's going to happen when we um, pour the water out in these two different ways. Well, if you don't know, we would love you to find out at home yourselves because it's very, very easy to do. And what's more, if you can ring in and tell us, you might win a prize. So please do so. The Naked Scientist can be reached on 08459 25 And the email, if you'd like to get in touch that way, is chris at thenakedscientist.com. So we will be back in the Naked Scientist Laboratory towards the end of the show to find out exactly what happens and, of course, an explanation from Herbert and, indeed, how this effect relates to the real world. So keep listening for that, and uh, it's back to the studio until then. Thank you very much, Derek, Herbert and Henry. So that number again, 08459 25 2000, or email me chris at nakedscientist.com if you want to have a go. Uh, coming up later on the programme, of course, we're going to be talking invasive species, and we have from the University of Cambridge David Aldridge here, and we'll be talking about Lonesome George, the last giant tortoise of his kind on Earth. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Helen Scales. And remember, we are waiting for your call, so give us a call on 08459 25 2000. But now it's time for this week's science update from Chelsea Wald and Bob Hersham in the AAAS over in America. And this week they're focusing on the family as they talk about the sounds babies like to listen to and how relationship harmony helps to keep a healthy heart. For the Naked Scientists this week, we'll be taking a look at the conflicts couples should avoid if they want to have healthy hearts. But first, Bob brings us a story about language, one of the most important things that separates humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. 
New research shows that our ear for language starts at birth, and maybe even earlier. That's right. It seems that babies are born with a preference for the sounds of speech, as opposed to other types of sound. This, according to developmental psychologist Athena Volomanos of McGill University in Canada. Her experimental device: pacifiers, or as you call them in the UK, dummies. She and her colleagues tested how vigorously newborns sucked on them in response to two sounds: a spoken nonsense word, lip, and a computer-generated sound that has the melody and main frequencies of speech but isn't speech. And what we found is that as the experiment goes on, the infant, the neonate, would suck more and more to hear speech and less and less to hear non-speech, which tells us, the experimenters, that the newborn is showing a preference or being more aroused by speech than these other counterpart sounds. The question remains whether infants are genetically programmed to prefer speech or if they pick it up by listening from inside the womb. Volomano says she has evidence that it's in part genetic, but regardless of the source, it seems clear that babies' early preference for hearing speech is an important tool in learning language. Yes, language that we use to communicate ideas, express love and happiness, and sometimes to fight. Our next story is about how fights between spouses can literally be bad for the heart. Recent research shows men and women react to marital conflicts differently, at least in their arteries. That's right, Chelsea. Stress in your marriage can be bad for your heart, but the worst kinds of stress differs for men and women. This, according to psychologist Tim Smith and his colleagues at the University of Utah, they analyzed older married couples discussing hot-button issues like money and chores. When conversations were hostile, the wives, but not the husbands, had increased hardening of the arteries. For the men, power struggles were the biggest risk factor. And this is consistent with a lot of other research that suggests that compared to men, women are more attuned to how well people are getting along, whereas men tend to be more sensitive to who's in charge and who's controlling. Eliminating conflict is pretty much impossible for most couples, but these findings should help them pinpoint the specific sorts of fights they should avoid to make their marriages healthier. Thanks, Chelsea and Bob, for that. So next time you think you're going to have an argument with your other half, just think about your heart. And remember, you can find out more information on the Science Update or listen to any of their other podcasts by going to www.scienceupdate.com. And of course, if you're online, send us an email as well with your questions to Chris at NakedScientist.com. That's anything at all about science, technology, and medicine. But right now on the show, we obviously have Henry and.、Um, David, David, I'm sorry, David. I know David. I just went blank. Henry and David are in the in the studio with us today. So ask your questions about conservation, about invasive species, and all sorts of things like that. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. It is Helen Scales and Chris Smith. We're here as the Naked Scientists this week, and of course we are going to be talking shortly about invasive species. In other words, introducing animals to parts of the world where they shouldn't be. What are the consequences? It's easy to underestimate what can happen. Just look at Australia, where someone took seven rabbits about a hundred years ago just for a bit of sport for shooting. Now there are millions of them, and they're devastating Australia's own、uh, natural community and natural wildlife.、Uh, if you would like to ask any questions about that, Henry Nichols is here to talk about Lonesome George, the last giant tortoise on Earth, and David Aldridge is here from. The University of Cambridge to talk about those things specifically. Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand or Chris at NakedScientist dot com with your questions. Now, if you'd like to drop me a line and tell me you're listening to our show or、uh, or you have a question for us,、uh, that's the way to do it. Chloe Dalymore has written to us, and it looks like from her email address she's listening in Magdalen in Oxford、uh, here in the UK. She says, "Great show, guys! I listen to your podcast and I love it. Never stop. That's what we like to hear."
I've also got one from the lovely sunny island of Hawaii. Wish I was there at the moment. Today was rather cold. And we have an email from Stephanie who says, Aloha, naked scientists. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your show. I have learned so much in this series and I sure hope that you can continue your invaluable lessons to inform the students of the world. Your podcast is the best by far. So that's great. Thank you very much for that. The check's in the post. It is The Naked Scientists, and uh, we are, of course, in the Cambridge Science Festival all of this week, and it kicked off in a very big way yesterday with Science on Saturday. And, uh, in fact, over the course of the week, Cambridge University are fully expecting 40,000 people to come through the doors of the university and find out what's going on in the university. And, really, the aim here is to make science understandable and fun for everyone in the general public. It's completely free. It's the UK's biggest free science festival. It's definitely worth a trip, and there are events available uh, for anyone to come to all of the week. Anyway, here's a roundup of what we got up to um, l- yesterday. And uh, one of the first people I had a chat to was the person who opened the festival for us here in Cambridge, and that was Carol Vorderman. I asked her what she thought about last year's Sudoku craze, which she was very much a part of. I was addicted. Well, I still am, actually. I couldn't go anywhere without taking one with me. And I've now managed to control my addiction. I've got it down to just one or two a day. But um, I, th- I think we should have Sudoku patches being sold at the chemist, you know. That bad. What, what sure do you think makes them so addictive, Carol? I don't know. I think they access a particular part of the brain. I've been trying to um, get people into numbers puzzles for decades now, and a lot of people glaze over when they see numbers. But Sudoku seems to reach a particular part of the brain and to, to let all of those other thoughts escape, and you can just have a sense of pure thought. It's been a little while since you were in Cambridge studying. What did you actually do here? I did engineering here, and I was at Sydney Sussex College. I was one of the poorest students, I have to say. I had a third in every year of the tripos, and I believe the students now, in honour of that, if you get a third, it's called having a vorderman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, joy. But this kind of event didn't exist when you were here, so what what do you think of it? This is brilliant. It's the first time I've been, and it's packed. And everybody, you know, they're not people who've come on scientists and they're not, they're not at all associated with the university under normal circumstances, just here because they want to learn something, have a bit of a good time, see what's going on. It's brilliant. Almost certainly minding her P's and Q's, that was Countdown's Carol Vorderman, proving that not even a maths guru on Countdown can get a first-class degree from university. Now, sticking to the educational theme, I then spoke to the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, Professor Alison Richard, about what the Cambridge Science Festival is really trying to achieve. It's all about trying to increase the understanding of uh, the deep, incredible interest of science and its importance and how it can explain and illuminate the world. And the mechanism whereby we're doing this is through really, really interesting experiments that are a lot of fun. Why do you think it is so important to get the message about science out and and tell people in the public domain what's going on in universities like Cambridge? I think it's really important to capture the imaginations of children about the importance of science and the fact that they might grow up uh, to study science and then to go on and do something in science. And if we have planted the seeds of that idea and that ambition into some of the children here today, that will have been a great thing to do. And when you watch their faces, you know, I've seen a lot of children this morning looking just so wrapped with interest and attention. That was Alison Richard, the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, talking about why the Cambridge Science Festival is so important for increasing public interest in science. Now, one person who's already very much interested in science was found spinning in a chair in the middle of the lawn. Anna Lacey and Dave Ansell got her involved in some kitchen science. 
I'm Fiona and I'm 13. And where have you come from today? I've come from um, Enfield in London. Wow, so we're getting people coming from all over the country to Cambridge this very day. So, Dave, can you tell us what has Fiona got to do? Well, Fiona's sitting on a really a chair which will spin really easily. I want her to take hold of these two bags of rice, one in each hand. Grab hold of those really tightly. How are your muscles feeling, Fiona? They're <laughs> fine. Good job. Okay, Fiona, what I want you to do is hold your arms out straight and your legs out forward straight. I'm going to spin you gently. Okay, so now Fiona's spinning around with her legs out. I want you to pull your arms and your legs in towards your body. Ah. <laughs> okay, put your arms out again. And pull them in again. Okay, we'll stop you, Fiona. Now, Fiona, can you tell us what happened when you stuck your arms out and then brought them in? When I brought them in, I um, started to spin like faster than I was when they were out. Dave, what was happening? Well, if you think about how far the weights have got to go, when you've got your arms out, it's like a great big circle. It's a long way round. When you pull them in, it's a much smaller circle, so it's much less distance than to travel. So even if they were going at the same speed, it would take much longer for to go around the big circle than the small circle. Now, also... Um, did you notice it was quite hard to pull the weights in? Yes. Okay, so when you're pulling the weights in, you're fighting against a pretend force called centrifugal force, and it gives, you, gives the weights even more energy, so they spin even faster. So it's not only because you've got less distance to travel when you pull those bags in, but you're also putting in extra energy, which speeds you up even faster. Yeah, that's right, Anna. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. And have you ever done any ice skating? Um, yes, but I'm not going to be able to spin around for very long. Did you actually feel sick at all? Um, yes. Why do you feel sick, Dave, when you've been turning around really, really quickly? Well, the way your head knows which way up it is, is inside it there's lots of loops of tubes. They're called the semicircular canals. And in those is a liquid. If you start spinning for a long time, the water starts moving round and round the tubes. And when you stop, it carries on going and your brain thinks your head's moving. The reason why it makes you feel sick is there are lots of poisons which confuse these parts of your ears, and so your body thinks that maybe it's been poisoned, so in case you've eaten something bad, it throws up. All in a spin, that was 13-year-old Fiona, with Anna Lacey and Dave Ansell finding out about the science of giddiness and why spinning around on a chair makes you want to throw up. Now, speaking of throwing up, what about the science of dragons and throwing up fire? We got talking to Henry G from Nature magazine about his new book, The Science of Middle Earth. I do two things. I talk about how you could make these things happen. How do you make dragons breathe fire? How do balrogs, these demons, fly? How do orcs reproduce? Because Tolkien never talked much about sex, but that doesn't mean that I can't, so I've had a lot of fun doing that. Well, I've met some people who almost do have breath that's as bad as breathing fire, but uh, how, how do you think dragons could have fiery breath then? Well, I thought it was actually not so difficult. All you need to do is have something that kind of fumes a bit, has a very low critical point, and ignites very easily um, if just uh, mechanically on contact with something. So I thought, easy, diethyl ether. I had the most incredible ether fires when I was at school. All you have to do is tip it from one test tube to another, and it ignites. So if you had the dragon who making ether in its ether glands, all it would do is breathe it out over it, across its teeth, and you'd get a flame. And as everyone who's had laboratory accidents know a little ether goes a long way. Well, it is the naked scientist, so let's get back to the sex. Uh, orcs and sex, tell us about that. 
Well, you know, Tolkien said that there were boy orcs and girl orcs, but then he, uh, he kind of lost the plot after that because nobody knows how orcs were made. But I think that a lot of orcs are parthenogenetic. In other words, they're all girls, and they reproduce without sex at all. Um, and you think, well, you know, they look pretty male, but then so do female hyenas because they're so stoked up with testosterone to go and do battle with other female hyenas. So I thought, you know, we actually don't know this with orcs because, you know, you, nobody, nobody ever sees an orc without its trousers on. Um, so, you know, that has to rem remain in the realm of hypothesis. Well, let's hope it stays that way. Now, from fiery breath and orc sex to eyeballs, because I caught up with nine-year-old Ewan at Crash Bang Squelch, one of the very hands-on activities at Cambridge Science Festival, and asked him what he thought about the prospect of cutting up a sheep's eyeball. I think it's really fun, and it's really exciting to be here for the second time. So, obviously, it was good last year because you've come back, but what have you done so far today? So far, um, we've done Crash Bang Squelch, and we've had a little look at some other things. One of the things you've, I've just seen you fiddling with is a sheep's eyeball. Tell us about that. Um, well, we learned all sorts of things about the eyeball, such as the, the, um, it's got black stuff inside the eye, and, under, and with the black stuff there is jelly, which I never knew. Did it help to actually get a real eyeball and chop it up for you to understand what goes on inside your own eyeball? Yes, it did. Um, apart from a sheep gets more night vision because it's got colour in its eye. Oh, there's a reflective layer on the back of the eyeball, isn't there? Yes. I yes. bet you don't know the name of it. Um, no, I don't. Do you want to know the name? Yes, please. It's called the tapetum lucidum. That's a Latin word and it means bright carpet. Does it? I'd never known that. Thank you. And what would you say to anyone else at home listening to this thinking, should I go to the Cambridge Science Festival? Um, I would say, go now. You heard him. That was nine-year-old Ewan doing the big sell on sheep's eyeballs. He was there at the Cambridge Science Festival's Crash Bang Squelch. And before that, you heard Dave Ansell, our regular kitchen science guru, doing a little bit of kitchen science of giddiness. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists... It is Chris Smith and Helen Scales here as the Naked Scientists on this week's edition of the show. Coming up very shortly, we'll be talking about invasive species, introducing animals where they shouldn't be and what the consequences are. And we'll also be talking about Lonesome George, the last uh, giant tortoise of his kind on Earth potentially. I've got an email here from Scott Webster, who's in Sydney, and he says, I never give feedback, but I move to make an exception in your case. I listen to your show religiously here in Australia. I access it via your podcast. It's very entertaining and informative. I work in the cutthroat world of investment banking, and I find it very refreshing to hear intelligent, informed discussion amongst professionals, whilst all the time keeping a half an eye on the humorous side of things. The format's excellent. Regards, Scott. And I've got an email here from Derek, who lives in Mississauga near Toronto in Canada. Now, Derek, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, but he says, I really enjoy listening to the podcast on my way to university in the morning. Anyways, after listening to the show on, science, on space science, I thought that it might be of interest to your listeners that Google has put up a new website that allows internauts to view the surface of Mars. Now, check it out, and you can do this at home at uh, www.google.com forward slash Mars. And I have to say, it is absolutely fantastic. I've got a printout here of just one of the pictures you can look at and you can see all the detail of what's going on right there on the surface of Mars. You've got mountains and rivers and gullies and, you know, you should never get yourself lost now. This is exactly what you need if you're ever on the surface of Mars to find out where you are. If you just find yourself adrift on Mars, for example. 
Exactly. You won't get lost. We're we're sticking to the space theme. As you know, every week we have a podcast pick on the programme. And we've now got a series of five. We heard part one of that last year, uh, last week, sorry. It's from the European Space Agency's Daniel Skuka. And he's taking us on an express trip to Venus, the green planet, our next nearest planetary neighbour. Venus is very interesting, uh, which is why the European Space Agency have (coughs) have decided to send a probe there called Venus Express, because it has a runaway greenhouse effect and scientists think that it might therefore be able to tell us a bit about what's in store for us here on Earth in a few years' time. And also they want to find out a bit more about whether or not there might be active volcanism on Venus. Anyway, with part two this week, uh, we're continuing our trip and uh, finding out exactly how a spacecraft makes it over 400 million kilometres through space to hit the target and arrive at Venus. As we speak, the European Space Agency's Venus Express is en route to its namesake destination in one of Europe's most ambitious planetary exploration missions ever. Venus Express will spend 500 Earth days in orbit, aiming to unlock secrets of the hellish planet's runaway greenhouse effect, atmospheric collapse, and possibly still active volcanoes. But before in-orbit science can begin, Venus Express has to get there, and navigating the spacecraft through more than 400 million kilometers of interplanetary space is one of the most difficult and mathematically challenging aspects of the voyage. It's a devilishly difficult problem, as computations must take into account all sources of gravity working on the spacecraft, And these include not only the Earth and Venus, but also the Sun and other planets in our solar system. ESA scientists use good old-fashioned classical physics, first clarified by Newton, Kepler, and others, some 400 years ago. Rudiger Kram is a flight dynamics engineer on the Venus Express team at ESA's Spacecraft Operations Center in Darmstadt, Germany. The fundamentals in physics, the classical physics, is still applicable. We also have to consider effects of relativity. But the main principles are all from Newton... And Kepler. Venus Express travels to its destination following a three-part trajectory, first starting with launch and aimed at attaining escape velocity from our home planet. The launcher gave us a velocity high enough to escape from the Earth. The second and main part is the transfer part. The spacecraft now moves mainly under the influence of the Sun for about five months until we reach Venus. As Venus Express approaches the planet on April 11th, it will be traveling at the incredible speed of almost 5 kilometers per second with respect to Venus, around five times faster than a machine gun bullet. And it will have to slow down by about 25% of that speed to be captured by Venus's gravity. And the situation there is similar uh, to playing golf. When you play a golf ball too hard, the ball will slip over the hole. And to avoid this with our spacecraft, we have to perform a braking maneuver. And Venus can capture the spacecraft. The aim is to end up in a 24-hour orbit around the hothouse planet. The risk is that if any problems occur, the spacecraft could miss its window for capture, making recovery extremely challenging. Join us again next week when we speak with engineers working on ESA's global network of ground tracking stations to learn more on how mission controllers send commands to spacecraft in deep space and how data that Venus Express gathers will be returned to scientists here on Earth. For the European Space Agency, I'm Daniel Skuka, reporting from the European Space Operations Centre in Darmstadt, Germany. The European Space Agency's Daniel Skuka um, with Rudiger Kram, the flight's dynamic engineer for the mission. If you want more information on Venus Express uh, or the European Space Agency itself, you can go to www.esa.int. That's I-N-T. E-S-A for the European Space Agency dot int, I-N-T. And you can also listen to both of those Venus Express podcasts all over again. We'll be catching up with the progress of the Venus, Expression, uh, the Venus Express mission again next week.
Dr. Chris and Dr. Helen, we're here with you uh, on this week's edition of The Naked Scientist talking about invasive species and things ending up where they shouldn't. And from Cambridge University's Department of Zoology now, Dr. David Aldridge joins us. Good evening, David. Hello there. Thanks for coming in. Tell us a little bit about the problem of invasive species, because it's easy. Rabbits is very much in your face in Australia, and most people have heard of that. But um, what about other more subtle examples? Um, invasive species are one of the biggest threats to the world's ecosystems and wildlife. Um, and many species um, go pretty much unnoticed until we start looking in a bit more detail. I, I work in rivers and lakes, and there some of the biggest threats to our um, natural biodiversity is from non-native species getting in. Um, a good example that we're working on at the moment is something called the zebra mussel, which actually has got into the Great Lakes of North America, is spreading through Britain, through East Anglia in Britain, and threatening our native organisms. What does it look like? It's very much like the marine mussels that you like to eat, but it's a freshwater version. It has a beard, a byssus thread, which it uses to attach to solid surfaces, mm. and it has a stripy shell, which is where the name zebra comes from. How big are they? They're about three centimetres in length. So th these are quite small, actually, then, compared with the big things you see on the dinner table in the sort of south of France. Yes, they're, they're small, but they live in really high densities. And when they get into new places, they can reach densities of over 100,000 in a square metre. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, so absolutely, they engulf absolutely everything. So where do they tend to make a beeline for, or should that be a muscle line? <laughs> um, they, they, they do very well in rivers and lakes. They're not very choosy, and this is one of the characteristics of invasive species, is that they often can live in a broad range of habitats. They're not very um, specialised. They can be generalists. They can get into disturbed habitats very quickly. And in the case of zebra mussels, there's nothing else in fresh waters that really attaches to solid surfaces, so they can exploit unexploited niches. So why are they a problem, though? Um, well, they've got a lot of publicity, particularly in um, North America, because they affect industry. They block pipes in power stations. They have closed down water treatment processes and things. And that's because they can attach to surfaces. So in North America, they cost $5 billion a year. But also from a conservation viewpoint, they're very worrying because they change the entire nature of the ecosystem they invade. So they'll sit on top of anything that's solid, including our native mussels, which they choke and smother. And so we have a rare mussel in Britain called the depressed river mussel. But it is um, now, yeah. It really is now, yeah. <laughs> it's totally covered in zebra mussels, sort of stopping it from being able to feed and eat. How did they get here? Um, the zebra mussels have a really interesting method of dispersal in that they have planktonic larvae which can remain in the water column for up to a month. And a lot of the overseas dispersal has been in the ballast water of ships. So ships will go ah. from one freshwater port to another and cross the sea and dump the water when it gets to the new port. And so actually this is one of the major vectors of invasive species. There's been some work done on ships moving from Japan to North America and they found over 300 non-native species living in the ballast water. So now there's a big move towards treating ballast water to control all the little invasive pests inside it. I guess no one thought about the potential for this problem when ships began to do this. No, and, and still it's very difficult to regulate. A lot of people turn a blind eye and don't actually recognise the value and importance of it because changing ballast water out at sea, for instance, is costly and time-consuming, so people don't want to do it. You made headlines uh, fairly recently with a fairly novel approach to dealing with this problem, didn't you? Yes, um, we, we've, I mean, I'm, I'm a conservation biologist, but on this occasion I've actually been out to kill the pests, so it's, sort of, it's a slight challenge to my, um, to my nerve. But um, we've developed something called the, um, the BioBullet, which is an environmentally friendly solution for controlling zebra mussels. 
Um, and this is particularly something that you can use in, um, in pipelines and in industry. So traditionally, if you pour bleach down a pipeline, which is what they do, they use sodium hypochlorite, the zebra mussels are very clever and they'll sense that toxin and close up their shells. And what we've done is that we've encapsulated our toxins, in this case a salt, in a little, little edible coating which tricks the zebra mussels into eating it. So they think they're getting a tasty feast and they concentrate it out of the water as they busy filter out the food and swallow this toxic pill without realising it. And why doesn't this take down native wildlife? Well, what we do is we put it down a pipeline and we engineer the coating to break down within two or three hours of going in the water. So all the water that goes out into the wider environment, um, into lakes and rivers, has already degraded and the salt has dissolved, so there's no toxic build-up in the environment. Why isn't this a problem in parts of the world where these mussels are, are native? It's a very good question, and very often when people are trying to find ways of controlling invasive pests, they'll go to their native range and ask, why is it that this thing's being kept under control? Sometimes it can be a biological agent, such as a predator or a virus or a parasite, which has evolved in association with that organism and keeps it in check. In um, but often when species are taken out of their range, then there's nothing there which is actually... Um, present to regulate it and this is why invasive species often do very well in island habitats and things where there's a very low diversity of organisms so there's a lower chance that there's going to be something there to actually eat it or, um, or, or kill it through disease. What's the chance of something evolving to be able to prey on it and then therefore make the problem go away? Um, there is, there, 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 there's possibilities um, over time. I mean, often invasive species will establish, become very, very abundant, and then the ecosystem will um, adapt, if you like, um, in that um, those organisms which can deal with the invasive are selected for and therefore start to persist. So, but, but in the meantime, we've got problems with these invasives just establishing and causing us ecological and economic problems. David Aldridge from Cambridge University's Department of Zoology. If you'd like to ask David a question, uh, you, you can talk to him live on The Naked Scientist. It's 08459 25 2000 or email him uh, via me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, another invasive species uh, is one which is manifest in Australia. It's the cane toad, and they were introduced in 1935 from South America. And the idea was to try to control insect pests that were laying waste to Queensland's cane fields, because there's a lot of sugar cane that grows in Queensland, which is at the northeast corner of Australia. Unfortunately, those results have been a massive disaster. Bufo marinus, which is the uh, Latin name for a cane toad, can live for 15 years, and it produces, get this, 30,000 offspring per toad every single year. And as well as being highly invasive, it's also extremely toxic, and this is having a devastating effect on Australian native species that are particularly partial to a toad-sized meal. And Sydney University's Rick Shine has been watching the advance of the tide of, to of toads as they move west across Australia. In studies at the invasion front with this feral toad that's roaming across Australia, we discovered that they're moving much faster now than they were when the invasion started. And looking at the movement patterns of toads up in the bush near Darwin, we found that longer legs help toads to move faster, and sure enough, the toads at the invasion front have got substantially larger legs than the ones further behind. And it's taken, what, 50, 60 years for them to develop this trait? Yeah, the toads were introduced to Australia about 70 years ago on the other side of the continent from where we're working on them. So they've covered about a million square kilometres over 70 years and from our work it looks like they're getting faster and faster at spreading across Australia. So how fast does a toad hop in the average day then? 
if you look at the toad, it really doesn't look like it's made for speed. And I'd expected when we first started that a toad would be uh, really tired at the end of moving 50 metres in a night. But when we strap little radio transmitters onto these guys at the invasion front, we find that they're moving often half a kilometre, sometimes a kilometre, occasionally two kilometres in a single night. And they keep moving in the same direction. Basically, they seem to have a compass in their pocket and they're just heading west. That's an extraordinary distance for something which is, a, well, five or six inches long to have covered in a night. I'm astonished at just how far the toads can move. These first toads that arrive at the invasion front are really incredibly active animals. And so they spend the day hidden in grass, perhaps 10 metres off the road. But as soon as the night falls, they go straight back to the main road, one that's heading east-west, face west and start hopping. Now, you mentioned the invasion front. So what have you actually done to watch these guys as they make their progress west? Well, myself and, and my colleagues have been studying the snakes, mostly, at an area not too far from Darwin for about 20 years. And so we've got a study site that we actually understand pretty well and the toads have just arrived. So as the toad first arrives at our study site, we're out there every night looking around, so we, we catch those toads, we strap a small radio transmitter with a little waistband around to hold it on and let the toad go again, and then we locate the toad every day. And in that way, we've built up a picture of where they travel, how far they travel, what direction they go, and things like this. And what about the, the study on the leg length, though? How have you made that finding? Well, we were interested in the fact that the toad seemed to run along the road rather than the bush, and the obvious reason was that you can move much faster on the road. So we ran some very simple trials over quite short distances, and we discovered that, sure enough, the toads are quicker in the open ground, but they're also a toad with longer legs is quicker than a toad of the same body length with shorter legs. So we thought that in an invasion, the animals at the front would be the fastest ones. There'd be continual selection for the fastest animal. Now, if that's the case, what you should find is that the toads at the front will be faster than the toads further back. And from our little series of raceway trials, we thought it might turn out that the toads at the front had longer legs than the guys further back. And rather to our astonishment, that's exactly the pattern that we found. Are there any disadvantages, though, Rick, that go with longer legs? It's really intriguing that leg length decreases consistently as a function of how long toads have been in an area. So if we look at the, at the samples that have been taken and put in museums over about a 60-year period in Queensland, it's clear that relative leg length is decreasing year by year by year. Now, that really does suggest that there's some cost to having long legs, but we have no idea at the moment what kind of cost that might be, and we're very interested in what, in what that could be, and, and we're trying to run a series of trials to test ideas. Sydney University's Rick Shine talking to me there about the cane toad problem in Australia. And interestingly, Rick tells me that many of the animals which are originally falling prey to eating these toads and then being poisoned by them have now learned various techniques to avoid being poisoned, including birds that flip the toads over onto their backs and so they eat the stomach, the underbelly of the toad, which isn't toxic. And also snakes have now begun to evolve smaller heads which make them less partial to a toad-sized meal. It is The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and here with me this evening, Helen Scales, and we're talking about invasive species and we're also very shortly going to be talking about lonesome george the last giant tortoise of his kind on the surface of the earth laying the facts bare the naked scientists the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen, we're here with you and uh, discussing the science of invasive species. But right now we're going to talk, first of all, about Lonesome George. Have you ever heard of him? Perhaps not, but Henry Nichols certainly has, and he's with us now. Hi, Henry. Good evening, Chris. Tell us a sto about the story of Lonesome George. Um, George was discovered uh, in 1971. He's um, on this very remote island in the Galapagos, which is 
out there in the Pacific Ocean. Where, where Charles Darwin... Uh, Charles Darwin passed through uh, in 1835. And this island had thought to have lost all its giant tortoises. Um, which, where did they go? Well, during the 18th and 19th centuries, sailors and buccaneers came through, passed through, and um, basically ate them. Why were they particularly good as a food source for sailors? Um, it's really because they don't need food or water. Or uh, sailors. To, <laughs> the tortoises to, to, be, uh, to, to stay alive. So yeah. the sailors would, would collect these tortoises, take them on board, and, and just sort of flip them upside down in the hold. And then they would uh, sometimes possibly live as long as a year on board, um, but still be alive. Um, so when they were killed a year later, the, the sailors could have fresh meat. Do they taste good then, allegedly, these giant Allegedly tortoises? they do. I, I can't say I've tried or would try. Darwin, in fact, uh, noted in his, uh, in his writing that uh, they made it excellent. The young ones in particular made excellent soup. Uh, contributing there to the downfall of the species. But So how did Lonesome George end up being the last one? Well, uh, this island that he lived on got particularly hard hard hit um, and the last ones were collected or thought that they were thought to be the last ones collected in 1906 and nobody saw any more until 1971 when they found this um, this single male and he was taken into captivity um, on a different island and he's been there ever since. What are the prospects for him Emery? Um, they're, they're bleak frankly um, it, it, as far as his reproduction is concerned, but as far as his status as a conservation icon is concerned, uh, they are—they've um, never been better. George is, is really um, quite an awesome ambassador for conservation, for the conservation cause in Galapagos and even beyond. I mean, he's, he's, he's thought to be about sixty to a couple of hundred years old, isn't he? Um, yeah, he's, we can say he's definitely sixty, um, and tortoises might live as long as two hundred. Nobody really knows how long, but they're thought to be the longest living um, animal on the planet, vertebrate at least. In terms of rescuing him, genetically speaking, uh, is he totally... Because is he, as, a, as a, the last of his species, obviously there's nothing else for him to mate with, but is it possible to cross-mate him with another related tortoise so you might be able to rescue some of his genes? There were originally thought to be about 15 different um, types of tortoise on the different islands. They call them subspecies but that indicates they're not entirely different species. So they're sufficiently closely related that they can breed with each other. And two females have been in George's enclosure with him since 1992. But no luck. From a different island. Absolutely no interest in them. He's um, quite adamant that um, he's not going to mate with them. He's not having any of it. Not having any of it. <laughs> but uh, he has had a girlfriend, though, hasn't he? He has had a girlfriend, which was uh, the lovely story that got me interested in George in the first place. Um, very shortly after... Um, these tortoises were put into his enclosure. Um, a Swiss zoology graduate uh, passed through the islands and volunteered her services um, at so the to speak. research <laughs> station. And uh, she got given the choice. She could either work on um, geckos uh, or she could uh, try and... They wanted her to collect a sperm sample from George so they could try some sort of artificial insemination, that sort of thing. Yep. She chose George, obviously. So, uh, and she spent four months trying to um, build up, or she built up this very intimate relationship with George um, and earned herself this nickname, Lonesome George's Girlfriend. Oh, he's also had some death threats. He has had some death threats, yes, uh, particularly in 1995. Um, it, he became embroiled in, in really a conflict between conservationists and fishermen that rumbled on through the 1990s. So the fishermen uh, wanted to fish more, 
in particular uh, a species um, called the sea cucumber or a type of sea cucumber there, very lucrative species sold to Southeast Asia, aphrodisiac properties, delicacy. And people wanted to fish it, they could make a lot of money. Um, but the conservationists could see this was an unsustainable fishery and tried to impose a quota. Fishermen weren't happy with it. And they sort of stormed the, uh, uh, the station and uh, held a machete to George's head. And um, the conservationists backed down, let, the, um, let them fish. Has the sea cu- cucumber succumbed? Um, the sea cucumber is is uh, ecologically extinct, I suppose. It's been now overfished to the point where the sea cucumbers can't even find each other to mate, so it's another quite sad story. Though not... Um, I mean, certainly conservationists could definitely bring them back together and, and resurrect that population. But while fishermen are intent on making money, no, it's, a bit, it's still it still rumbles on, it's still a problem there. This is Henry Nichols that we're talking to and uh, tell us about your book that you've published about the story because people might want to go and buy it and incidentally we can offer you one copy of this book which Henry will sign thereby trebling its value instantly and if you want to flog it on eBay you can therefore make a tidy profit but if you, you have to ring in and win it uh, but anyway, how, what, what's the book called and, and where can people get it? Well it's called Lonesome George it comes out um, the 3rd of April um, all good bookshops but obviously Amazon um, and uh, it, it really it tells George's story but uses him to explore conservation much more generally so he it's what surprised me about george's story is just how often i find that he um he 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 is a perfect example for some of the the challenges facing conservation biology in the 21st century um invasive species um notably because his island was overrun in fact the story very quickly, three goats were put on his island by fishermen in 1957. In the, in the 1970s alone, more than 40,000 goats were shot just from those three. And they've now eradicated them two years ago, um, finally. But uh, it, it, it took nearly you know, half a century. How three became 40,000. Henry Nichols, the author of Lonesome George, and his book, as he says, comes out very, very shortly, and we have a copy of it which will be signed and which you can win tonight on The Naked Scientists. And here's how to give us a call to find out how to win it. Fancy listening to The Naked Scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientists.com forward slash podcast. Dr Chris and Dr Helen Scales here with you this week as the Naked Scientist. We've had a call from Les Inover. He said he won some tickets for the IMAX a while back and since we're talking about marine things, this is entirely relevant. He said he had a great time and saw sharks which look absolutely incredible in 3D. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Les, for taking part in our competition. He won IMAX tickets to go down to the three-dimensional 3D IMAX cinema at the Science Museum down in London. As I say, this week we have up for grabs a copy of Henry Nichols' book, um, which you can win by giving us a call. Don't forget, Kitchen Science is going on at the moment. You have to fill a bottle with some water, turn it in a big spiral pattern, a big circle to create your own sort of hurricane slash tornado inside and then pour the water out. What happens and why? That's the question. Get calling now. You've got just a few minutes to solve the riddle and you could win a copy of Henry's book. 08459252000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, Helen, uh, you're a marine biologist. What are the key problems if we look at the sea at the moment? I guess the most obvious and pervasive problem in the oceans is that we're taking too much out of them. We're catching far too many fish in far too many types of species and uh, it's becoming more and more of a problem. 
Why should that be such an issue? Why don't we just, say, catch a certain species and let the others recover? Or is that impossible to police? Well, I think the problem is there's so many fishermen out there. I mean, Henry's already been talking about just one island in the middle of the Pacific and one particular species that the fishermen were after. And I'm sure that now that the sea cucumbers in the Galapagos are perhaps declining a bit, those fishermen are finding something else to catch. They may well be trying to catch things like sharks and take their fins off, which also supplies a high-value trade. And that's one, one issue of the problems with the sea, are things we can catch from the sea that are worth a lot of money. Fishermen can make a lot of money out of shark's fin to make shark's fin soup out of you might have heard of that um sea cucumbers seahorses they're also fished a lot for um for chinese traditional medicines so there's one i think one side is that really the oceans for some people are just a very large source of money a treasure trove if you like um and something to be exploited and i say the other problem essentially with the oceans is the fact that we feed ourselves from them and i think i think the statistics are something like half the world's population live within 60 kilometers of a coastline and essentially rely on their protein sources from fish what, what could we do at the moment to rescue, say, cod? Because that's pretty much facing instant jeopardy, isn't it? Cod are in a terrible state, depending on exactly where you look and which populations. I mean, there has been a fishery, a cod fishery, off the coast of Canada, which collapsed in the 1980s and hasn't reopened simply because there aren't enough fish left. Um, so, yes, cod is in trouble. Lots of other species are too. But it's not that... Dr- I mean, we do have one thing that might be able to help us, and that is protected areas, marine protected areas, marine reserves, marine parks, whatever you like to call them. Um, we do know a lot about now that... It's fairly obvious if you leave a piece of the ocean and you don't fish it, then that actually lets the fish recover. It gives them chance to reproduce, gives them chance to produce eggs and larvae. And not only can we find that marine parks help in terms of biodiversity, in terms of preserving the species, but they can also feed the fisheries that we're relying on as a safer kind of luxury species and just to feed ourselves on. So it's kind of win-win situation, really. And very briefly, Helen, there's an example, in fact, of how NASA are helping to save fish because of the no-go zone that's been created around the Kennedy Space Centre. That's right, yes. In fact, the way we know that it's working, which is quite a nice little study, was that they have... um, I think Americans are quite into their sport fishing, especially around Florida, and what they found is that the records of record-breaking enormous fish have gone up and up and up since since they've stopped fishing um, around the Kennedy Space Centre. So that works. So that's why we should be establishing more marine reserves to preserve fish stocks and try to encourage more big fish, which are more fertile, have more babies and have healthier babies. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We have about 10 minutes left this week. If you want to have a go at Kitchen Science, 08459 25 2000, or you have any questions about invasive species or conservation, our phone number 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists, I'm Dr Chris, and we have Dr Helen here as well. She's a marine biologist, and she was telling us there why it's so important to not overfish, because once things get to a certain level of population, if you have too few of them, then there's not enough genes in the gene pool, and these fish are destined to doom. Right, remember, Kitchen Science is running this evening, and we wanted you to spin a bottle and tell us what happened to the water coming out of it. We have one email here from Steve Collins, and he says the rate of flow of water out of the bottle is restricted by the rate of air replacing it because nature abhors a vacuum. The vortex created by the spinning bottle creates a hole that allows the air to replace the water running out. This allows the bottle to empty quicker. But someone else who was Thomas got there slightly quicker than Steve. Uh, Let's see what Thomas has got to say. Hello, Thomas. Hello. Thank you for taking part in the Kitchen Science. What did you think the answer was? Um... 
Well, I found out that um, it, the water comes out quicker and with less air bubbles. Absolutely spot on. Let's go back to Derek very quickly. You stay on the line, Thomas, and we'll see if you're right, OK? Derek, has he got it right? Hi again. Yes, welcome back to the Naked Scientist Laboratory where we have been poised, ready to do some pouring of water from lemonade bottles. And uh, with me is Herbert Huppert, of course, who's going to be giving us an explanation of what's going on. And, of course, Henry, who's actually going to be doing it. So, uh, Herbert, would you care to um, instruct Henry, finally, then, what he's got to do first? Well, in the first experiment, Henry, you just take uh, the full uh, bottle of uh, water and you tip it upside down, but into the sink, not on the floor, and watch what happens. Okay, um, the water is sort of glugging as the air rushes in, as the water pours out. And, and how well do you think it's pouring out? Not particularly well. Yeah, sure, but I mean, it's just about coming to the end now, so that looks to me like it's taken about 20 seconds, would you say? Yes. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so not, not very quick, really, was it, Herbert? But we've got another condition to try now, haven't we? Yes, uh, now, Henry, fill up the uh, bottle again with the water, and so we're going to start this experiment with exactly the same amount of water in the same sort of bottle so we can make comparisons between two different styles of experiment. And so the second condition of, of uh, pouring out is what? What's he got to do? Now, Henry, you're going to turn it upside down again uh, into the sink, but this time you're going to rotate it swiftly around in circles so that uh, you give it some rotary motion as it comes out. Oh, cool. Um, it created a whirlpool when I stopped, and it just poured all the way out in a sort of circular, so it was at the sides, but there was no water in the centre. And how well do you think it came out that time? Very well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that took maybe... How many seconds, do you think? Uh, ten. Yeah, exactly. So it was at least twice as quick, wasn't it, as doing it with, with just without swirling. So, Herbert, what does all this mean, and why, firstly, is it happening? Well, an important uh, point is that not only does the water have to come out of the bottle, but the air has to come back in. And there's a competition between the water flowing out and the air flowing back in, and that competition normally causes the glug, glug, glugging that uh, we hear so much. In the second experiment, when you rotated it around quite quickly, you made a whirlpool like a tornado, and that spun the relatively heavy water out to the sides and allowed the air to come in in the central core. Then there was no fight between the air and the uh, water. The air moved in quite nicely in the centre. The water, just as you said, Henry, moved out quite nicely on the side, and it can be two or three times or even more quicker to empty a bottle that way. So where, actually, do we see this? I mean, have we really created a tornado in, in, in the lab here? And, of course, people might have been doing it in their kitchen. Yes, uh, we have uh, created a tornado. The most important thing that Henry did is he added rotation, and that made for the central vortex that he got such a shock about. Now, there are lots of situations, especially in the atmosphere, where the rotation plays an important role. And the rotation is provided by the Earth's rotation because it rotates on its axis uh, once every day. So the best example that I can give you is Hurricane Katrina. If the Earth was not rotating, Hurricane Katrina and all these hurricanes would never happen.
And also we saw with the whirlpool that we created, it's sucking air up. So, I mean, this kind of sucking up effect, is that something we see with hurricanes and tornadoes as well? Yes, that's the important aspect of uh, hurricanes and how they can continue to exist. They suck up warm water from the ocean and they vaporise that and that's where they get their energy from. So, Henry, does that all make sense to you? Yes, it does. Excellent. How did you like our experiment? It was very interesting. And will you be going home and emptying bottles to your heart's delight? Yep. Good stuff. Excellent. We have another convert here. That's great. Okay, well, that's all from the Naked Scientist Laboratory. So we hope you can join us next time for more science in the lab or in the kitchen, wherever we may be. And uh, until then, it's back to you in the studio. Thank you, Derek, Herbert and Henry. And let's go back to Thomas. Thomas, you got the answer right. Very well done. There's a copy of Henry's book on its way to you, Henry. Yep. It's on his way, Tom. And he's going, you've, you're signed. He's signing it right in front of us, so thank you very much. Uh, what was it? Bob here, Bob Lewis, speculated to us via email that water comes out of the bottle more quickly because the centripetal force throws the water out towards the side of the bottle, allowing air to enter the bottle to break the vacuum, which would otherwise slow down the outflow. Regards, Bob. Bob says, this is the first time I've heard your programme, although my good mates Dave and Glenn have been telling me about it for weeks. You did get the answer right, Bob, but unfortunately Thomas there in Suffolk beat you to it. Well done, Thomas. I've got an email here from Julia Salazar. She says, you have at least one fan of your show here in Bogota in Colombia. She says, the Naked Scientist podcast has been very useful for my medical interpreting practice. Thank you. And thank you, Julia, for your email all the way from Colombia. Well, thank you to everyone that's listened to us here as the Naked Scientist this evening. Everyone at home on uh, on the eastern part of the country on BBC Local Radio, thank you very much for paying us your attention. And if you're listening to us on your podcast, do drop us a line and tell us which exotic part of the world or which exotic part of East Anglia you're listening to us in. A very big thank you to our wonderful team here at the BBC, to Anna Lacey, Holly Barclay, Petro Minch. I want to say thank you to Helen Scales for coming in and doing a wonderful job to help me present this week's show. Thank you, Helen. That's fine. Thank you. It's been great to be back. Thanks. And uh, to the people who took part this evening, uh, to, to you guys, Henry Nichols for his Lonesome George book and telling us a wonderful story, and David Aldridge with his uh, zebrafish and invasive species. Zebra mussels. Zebra mussels, sorry. <laughs> I, I got confused there. Zebra mussels, a wonderful story. Thank you all very much. Now, next week, we are in search of your questions because it's our science Q&A show. So we need your science questions, anything on anything. You can email them to me now, chris at nakedscientist.com. Otherwise, tune in at six for The Naked Scientist next week and have your question answered live. Have a great weekend. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.